So maybe it's a little known fact that preparing for a Dharma talk often brings a dukkha to a teacher. We call it uh, Dharma talk dukkha. Sometimes it's called papancha, this kind of proliferation of thought. And it's very much, it's an interesting, so I was sitting with Dharma talk dukkha today. Uh, and I was coming, you know, oh, I want to make sure it's the right message for this group. All of the things that are happening and following Bob's talk. And I had too many ideas. So I wrote a whole Dharma talk and it was just so many ideas. It was like the whole of the Dharma. Like I had to get it all in one sitting or something. And I was overwhelmed. And my, my brain actually started to kind of shut down. I started to kind of gloss over. And uh, Bob happened to be walking by. And I said, I'm having some Dharma talk dukkha. And he said, uh, he pointed to his heart. And he said, just come from there. And all will be well. So I scrapped that talk. <laughs> and I thought I would talk about loving kindness. And more importantly, uh, well not more importantly, but encompassing all of the what's known as the Brahma Viharas as a theme. To give some space to the uh, both sides of the Dharma. So there was aversion and then delight and relief. So this talk is based on my experience, my understanding, and my exploration. of uh, the Brahma Viharas and this practice. <clears throat> and I want to start with a poem. I learned this poem from Bob several years ago and it kind of instantly burned into my memory. Oh, this mind you carry on your back. Your actions are like a heavy sack. Strains enough to break your neck. So drop that stupid load. This is the last stop on the road. Stay. Be love's guest. This is by Kabir. So it's such a stupid load, isn't it? We carry it around. Unpack it. This retreat, it feels like it's an unpacking. And then what can we leave here when we go? You know, and bring maybe some new pieces, some new tools, some new insights with us. So I'm going to give just an overview of the Brahma Viharas or the sublime states. And then I'm going to focus specifically on friendliness or loving-kindness for the majority of this talk. So the four divine abodes or Brahma-viharas are known as metta, loving-kindness or friendliness, uh, compassion or karuna, selfless joy is my favorite translation, or mudita, and equanimity, balance. Upeka. I like to think of them as like the four chambers of the heart. Because this is what it takes to have a fully functioning heart. These four chambers working together. And these uh, sublime abodes work together. So they're often described as uh, excellent 
or lofty, sublime states of mind, or like the Brahma Viharas, or uh, godlike or divine abode. So this kind of heavenly uh, place, dwelling within our own hearts and minds. Very much a part of this practice. So the Buddha, you know, taught that to that as taught these uh, sublime abodes as this kind of direct uh, counterbalance to uh, the unskillful or entangling or unhelpful states of mind. Maybe you've experienced some of those today. Uh, these uh, unskillful or unhelpful entangling states of mind, dukkha, we call it. So I, like you, I'm no stranger to dukkha, to this unsatisfactoriness, this dissatisfaction with the way things are. You know, I started meditating when I was 16 years old. And uh, I was in jail. And I was looking at possibly going to prison for about seven and a half years. Mainly just being a punk kid and making bad choices that caught up to me kind of all at once. So I had learned to meditate. I had a psychologist friend of mine. Well, now he's a friend right? uh, and a mentor. But then he was just some weird psychologist guy that came to see me in juvenile hall. And... Uh, and he taught me some very basic uh, mindfulness skills. Breathing in. Know that you're breathing in. Breathing out. Know that you're breathing out. And uh, I had some time on my hands. So I started to practice, especially when things got hard. Uh, when things were difficult. And I, I sensed some ease. I, had, I guess there was some, some quieting of the mind, some, the chatter, the worry, the frustrations, you know, subsided for a time. Maybe you've had a similar experience. So then later, uh, through a martial arts practice, I uh, began sitting in more of a Zen tradition, which had very little instruction. My uh, sensei would say, Salen, which means like sit and begin hajime and that was it and then there would be some clacking and some bells and off my mind would go for as long as we were sitting but over several years of that practice i began to develop an understanding of mindfulness of uh, this basic instruction of breathing in and breathing out and then um, learning later uh, that this was a very simple instruction from the Buddha. So during that same time, and prior to uh, uh, really learning meditation and taking it on, which was several years after my introduction, I pretty much avoided painful feelings, and I tried to check out of whatever was happening in my life. You know, probably like many people here, I had some pain in my home, some dissatisfaction with the way society was and my place in it. And uh, I tried to escape. I tried a lot of different ways to escape. I consider myself an escape artist. You know, whether I was escaping from my home or the pain in my mind or, my or the societal view, there was a, an escape that was uh, sought after. This was a survival strategy, and it worked for a time, you know, but it left me feeling dissatisfied with life and unhappy. There was this kind of deep sense. I didn't realize it at the time, but there was a deep sense of uh, unhappiness or dissatisfaction. So mindfulness was helpful in quieting the mind and seeing the impermanent nature of things, seeing the kind of rising and passing of thoughts, and stories, and feelings. Mindfulness has been really helpful, uh, especially in those early years, kind of some of the first insights. 
You know, last night Bob talked about, um, you know, this, uh, was it, uh, who is it? Garatana? Bhante Gunaratana, who talked about, you know, seeing that our mind is like this crazy out of control. I think it was a drunk driver, you know, just kind of off. And uh, being able to see that and recognize that is considered the first insight. Oh, wow, this mind is out of control. What can we do to steady it? So thoughts, feelings, that they weren't mine, that they were just thoughts. And that I could see the arising and passing away of phenomena. But eventually that wasn't enough. This just calming the mind through some breathing exercises and mindfulness practice, even a little bit of concentration, uh, wasn't enough. That uh, even years into my practice, several years into my practice, uh, there was still, um, I don't know if you call it a void, or there was still a dissatisfaction. And I hadn't really heard about the heart practices. I mean, I had heard some about it. But to me, it was pretty much like some after kind of 60s, 70s, hippie, sissy, la-la kind of addition is the way I kind of categorized it in my mind. Uh, It wasn't what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught about wisdom, concentration, freedom from suffering. Uh, And I was, so I was pretty closed off to this idea uh, of loving kindness and friendliness. But I began to investigate I came across an article uh, on the sublime states by Nyanaponikatera. And Nyanaponikatera is a, uh, what was, an elder monk, German-born, living in Sri Lanka, scholar. And uh, in this article, uh, he had quite a bit to say. I'm going to be referencing the article quite a bit. So he talks about these sublime states. These four attitudes are said to be excellent or sublime because they are the right or ideal way of conduct towards living beings. That they provide, in fact, the answer to all situations arising from social contact. So that got my attention. Hmm. They are, he goes on to say, they are the great removers of tension the great peacemakers in social conflict, and the great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle of existence. It's pretty heavy. I thought, whoa, maybe there's some, in, there's some importance to this practice. Maybe I should give it a try. It goes on to say, they level the social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering nobility long forgotten. Revive joy and hope long abandoned and promote human brotherhood against the forces of egotism. So I think of them these days and it's been described as this like a bird of freedom. The center or the body of the bird being maybe the... uh, the Noble Truths, or the, the Potteries, the Ten Perfections it's often thought about, or the Eightfold Path. And then these uh, two wings, the wings, one wing is of wisdom, the cultivation of mind, the insight, what we've primarily been talking about and cultivating here. And then this other wing is the wing known as compassion, or the Brahma Viharas, the loving kindness, compassion, kind of all together. And I like that example. I think of the uh, Quetzal or a phoenix kind of burning through from the ashes of its former self, transforming, that it takes wisdom and compassion to transform. I think this is very much what the Buddha was pointing at. And it's been very much true for myself. Only through the burning of suffering do we transform. So, 
you know, several years into practice, I had, I had developed, you know, from this kind of martial arts experience and this kind of uh, uh, Zen practice and going to Thailand and training in some monasteries there. I developed this uh, kind of hardened kind of wisdom-seeking Dharma soldier that uh, would sit for hours on end and not move. And I just had this a very rigid kind of let's focus tight on the breath, present time experience. And this was really helpful. And it was also really harmful. And I didn't know it at the time. And it wasn't until actually uh, I was on a series of retreats kind of back to back. And I was leaving one retreat and I had like two days before I was going to another 10 day retreat. And at the end of the first retreat, I was doing some, you know, extreme yoga and uh, I pulled something in my back and I threw my back out. And then I had this other retreat scheduled. Um, and I went to the retreat and it happened to be a Goenka retreat. So it was like a Vipassana boot camp retreat where you sit for an hour straight and there's no walking and it's just, it was pretty intense. I knew it was going to be intense. And I went and I sat and I had so much physical pain and I wasn't uh, compassionate to the pain at all. Uh, and that's when it started to kind of become revealed to me um, that I needed to develop some more compassion. You know? some more compassion for my own suffering, some more loving kindness for the suffering of others and the uh, agitation and dissatisfaction with the way the world was. Uh, so that's kind of was the beginning of the exploration. So I look at uh, these sublime abodes in another way too. I want to kind of... Uh, bring this in. I see it as a house. And the metta, this uh, friendliness, this loving kindness, is the solid foundation of which this house is built. So it's as if we're going and we're, we're demolishing that which we knew. We're going to rebuild. We have to start with a solid foundation. And this metta, this loving kindness, is this solid foundation. And then the forgiveness practice, which isn't talked about much, but I, I feel like is very important and connected <coughs> to both metta and uh, karuna, compassion. So I put it right in between there as the floor in which we stand on. So this, this foundation of loving kindness and then this, you know, kind of the, the beginning of our house structured on a floor of forgiveness. We can stand in this open forgiveness. And then Karuna and Mudita are like the structure uh, framing the house, the walls, the rooms. And equanimity uh, is like the roof, you know, holding it all together uh, and protects others from the storms of life, protects ourselves and others from the storms of life. So this, I like to think of it as this kind of uh, way of building a house and that in some ways this is what we're doing here where we've drawn plans when we got here and we're doing the hard work now of building this house so i was not interested in the heart practices when i first kind of heard about them as i mentioned and my heart was just fine armored and protected from further harm it was just fine I didn't see a real need until, uh, I mean, a series of things happened, but that was that one insight. So Niana Panakatera writes, The contemplation of these attitudes are said uh, to aid in the disintegration of greed, hatred, and delusion, and should become a constant dwelling place for the mind. So the contemplation of these attitudes are said to be are said to aid in the disintegration or the destruction of greed, hatred, and delusion. And isn't that what we're trying to do here? That is the wisdom factor. I often think of it as the ten, the five, the three, and the one. 
the 10 kind of unwholesome mind states that we can get caught in. The five, which Bob talked about earlier, you know, last night, the hindrances. The three being greed, hatred, and delusion. And then the one being the ignorance or delusion that we are a separate self. Separate, permanent self. This uh, really aids in our suffering. So just to uh, remind you of the hindrances that Bob talked about last night. Sensual desire, fantasy, wanting, craving, aversion, or dislike, pushing away, avoidance, anger, ill will, uh, sloth and torpor, this kind of sleepiness, laziness, or sluggishness of mind, this uh, restlessness or remorse, sometimes agitation or distraction, kind of plays itself out. And then the last being doubt, questioning, or lack of belief in the benefits of meditation. It's often the way it plays itself out. So these are the five hindrances, which Bob talked about, and I'm sure you've been getting acquainted with and working with in your practice. So Jnana Panakatera had this to say about the importance of these Brahma-viharas. Meditative development of the sublime states will be aided by repeated reflection upon their qualities, the benefits they bestow, and the dangers from their opposites. Now we know what their opposites are. Greed, hatred, and delusion, and all of its forms. Those kind of unwholesome or negative mind states that we feed and they grow bigger and they turn into tidal waves in our minds. We get swept away and negative thought patterns or, you know. So the Buddha also pointed to this, you know, what a person considers and reflects upon for a long time, to that his mind will bend and incline. So the, what we're feeding in our minds during this practice, there's this kind of first level of, of quieting, uh, collecting, gaining uh, attention, an awareness of what's happening in the here and now, seeing the tendencies or the habits of our minds. And then when we begin to see these habits, then we have a decision. We have an opportunity. We can continue to feed them, or we can starve them. Right? We can feed the hindrances, or we can starve the hindrances and begin to incline the mind in a different direction. So present time awareness is a wonderful thing. And these uh, sublime abodes, heart practices, are also a, a wonderful way to incline the mind. I know some of you might be actually working on the heart practices while you're here. So we've, we've been talking about this, these different ways of working with the mind. So this metta or this heart practice, you know, it didn't really, I like to think of it as positive regard actually, because I was aversive to the idea of loving kindness, especially when I was younger. I've gotten a little more you know, okay with saying the words, right? But uh, what, what I did and what, what, well actually when I began to look at the translation, the translation for metta is really more like a friendliness. A kind friendliness to someone that's easy to care for. Someone that you, you meet and you just feel friendly towards. And then extending that out to all beings. So I like to think of it as positive regard. Because it was pretty easy, it still is pretty easy for me to have positive regard for everyone in this room. Everyone in this community. It's pretty easy for me to have positive regard. Loving kindness. I don't know. It just seems, it's just, it was just hard for me. So friendliness, positive regard seems to work. Yeah. Basic goodness. 
So when I really took this practice on, um, was out of desperation. So I had been practicing for a time. I'd begun to kind of study. Uh, and I knew about the heart practices, and I knew about this metta practice, but I didn't really uh, take it on. I was still the Dharma soldier, and you know, burning through suffering, through uh, uh, concentration, and present time awareness was what I felt like was the right way. Then I had a really bad breakup. Uh, and it shook me. You know, this really bad kind of, you know, those really bad breakups that you have, that you have had, that you're currently having. And I, I couldn't meditate, you know. I couldn't fall back into this uh, mindful awareness. There was too much agitation, too much resentment, too much rehashing and rehearsing. and uh, It was just suffering just painful so i had remembered a simple loving kindness practice so i began to recite these simple phrases during meditation may i be happy may i be peaceful may i be free from suffering may i be happy May I be peaceful. May I be free from suffering. And that's kind of all I could muster. And over and over and over and over again. And after a few weeks, actually, I began to feel a little bit of sense of ease. Or really, it was more some space. I began to feel some space. And then I would shift from Vipassana to Metta, Vipassana to Metta. I started to really see the benefit. So in Vipassana, in this insight practice, you know, we're learning to rebel or ignore against the conceptual mind, at least at first. You know, we spend so much time thinking and planning, and we're learning to actually kind of ignore and be here in the present moment with what's arising, breath, body, walking, you know, showering, present time awareness, and not getting so lost in the, prolif the proliferation of thoughts. So like I said, at least at first, you know, as we're going through, like today we've been working with uh, Vedana, we're working with the feeling tones, so, you know, this... Uh, uh, Breath, body awareness, kind of stabilizing, and then working into the feeling tone. And still staying, hopefully, it's hard to do, right? Staying out of the uh, overthinking of things, the planning, the regurgitation. So in loving kindness, uh, what we're doing is we're re-engaging this conceptual mind, but we're also uh, purifying and reshaping it towards the greater good. So this is a way of kind of thinking about uh, metta practice, that it's a way of kind of re-engaging the conceptual mind, but you're, you're doing so in a very specific way. So by focusing on the great, on uh, our own good nature and on the good nature of others, this kind of positive regard. So this aids in the disintegration of resentment, anger, and separation, which often causes us much suffering. Right? There's a lot, of, a lot of suffering around that. So I learned to develop uh, present time awareness and metta. And I call this kind awareness, this understanding of, uh, I got this from one of my teachers, Noah Levine, we're, we're using our practice, our, metta, our, our uh, insight practice, this breath, body, awareness, Vedana practice, four foundations of mindfulness practice. And then the storm comes. And it feels unbearable at times. And to shift, to have some positive regard for the storm. 
May I be peaceful. May I be at ease. May I be free from suffering. May I be peaceful. May I be at ease. May I be free from suffering. And then possibly coming back to uh, the Vipassana or breath awareness practice. I found this to be helpful. Even, uh, you know, another way of looking at it is this kind awareness as uh, in present time awareness, in the practice, then the mind wanders off and we recognize that the mind has wandered off. And then right there, just implanting a, a, just a little phrase of compassion or care for the mind. The mind wanders. The mind is unruly. It's flighty. Alighting where it wishes, as the Buddha said. So working with this as a practice might be helpful. So anger, fear, resentment, aversion, avoidance. These can be considered habits of mind, right? One of the hindrances. The Buddha gave metta uh, as an antidote to these reactive aspects of mind. So let's talk for a few minutes just about anger. You know, it's not our fault. We're not to blame. This ill will, aversion, we often, it comes up and then there's so much, I don't know if it's true for you, but it's been true for me, uh, so much attachment to it and blame and judgment. Judging the aversion. We are aversive. It's part of our mind stream. It's part of our mental states. So we're not, it's not our fault. But we are responsible. Response able. Able to respond to aversion, to anger, to ill will. If we can see it. Just like Bob was talking about. Uh, last night, and like we're uh, instructing you, but instructing you to do today, when these states arise, know that they're there. When they're arising, know that they're arising. When they're passing away, know that they're passing away. Know the causes of the passing away. Notice when there is... Uh, no agitation in the mind. You know, I said to you earlier, um, you know, I've, I came into this retreat actually with some a very in a very similar condition uh, to the, what I was describing before. With my back was out and had some pain in the body. And, uh, someone asked me today, How, "How's your back?" And I just took a moment and kind of checked in. Oh, absence of pain. There is no pain present. You know, how's your head? Absence of headache. There's no headache present. There was no unpleasant sensation and I was aware of it. Just for a moment. But that's enough to kind of start to reshape our experience. So anger and fear are cousins, right? Uh, both are based on the strategy to protect ourselves. From, perce some, from perceived threat, whether the threat is real or in the present moment or a perception based on past hurts or mistreatments. For some, anger protects the heart from pain by lashing out against any potential threat. This was definitely my style, kind of a paranoid anger. If I thought there was going to be some harm done to me, emotionally or physically, I would lash out. This was a habit that I learned as a kid. So while fear, so there's anger and then there's fear, while fear backs away or avoids based on the same principle as protection. I think often we do this. Yeah, This is part of our instinctual uh, drive. It's instinctual. Fight, flight, freeze. The fight, this uh, kind of angry patterns, reactive patterns. Uh, flight, this kind of aversion or avoidance. Or freeze to numb or to escape. 
I also liked to try to numb out or escape, as I mentioned earlier. So working with the Vedana, we can see the mind's tendency to escape unpleasant or painful physical or mental phenomena. I remember being on a retreat some years ago. And I was uh, doing this Vedana practice. And um, I started to notice uh, that my mind would wander off into some fantasy. Fantasy about the future and something pleasant and... You know, and it was all kinds of different things. Um, and when I began to bring the attention back, I would notice physical discomfort in the body. And then I started to be aware of when I had physical discomfort, where my mind might go. Or sometimes it was the opposite. I would notice fantasies. I would notice uh, some kind of pleasure-seeking. Um, oh, I wonder when dinner is. Oh, I would hope there's cookies. Those were good cookies last night. And then uh, I would check in with the body back to this present time awareness. And sure enough, there was some physical sensation almost every time. Or uh, sometimes there was a, a memory that was unpleasant that I didn't really want to uh, look at. And I would go off. My mind would in just go off instinctually. And so to begin to bring some kindness, some care, some compassion, uh, not judgment, not criticism, not, oh, I suck at this meditation thing, I should just give up now, go take a nap, which sometimes was skillful, but not always. Definitely in that moment. So we can learn to see anger or fear as an opportunity to practice loving kindness and forgiveness. A phrase that I've adopted uh, to help ease fear and doubt when they arise is, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. So when the, uh, the waves come, the storms of my own suffering or mental formations arise, instead of uh, meeting it with aversion or meeting it with uh, anger, judgment, I just say, I love you. Keep going right there in that moment. And sometimes that's actually something I just, you know, repeat. I love you. Keep going. I love you. Keep going. I got this technique from a teacher named George Haas. He's an excellent teacher. He uses this practice as a way to stay engaged with the, you know, the difficulty and work through it. So this kind of staying present with what is, even when it's unpleasant. So I love you, keep going. I wanted to read this little ditty from the Buddha. It's about hatred. Hatred never dispels hate. This is from the Dhammapada. Look how he abused me, beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me. Live with such thoughts and you live in hate. Look how he abused me, beat me, how he threw me down, robbed me. Abandon such thoughts and live in love. In this world, hate never dispels hate. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. You too shall pass away, knowing this, how can you quarrel? Knowing this, how can you quarrel? Hmm. Forgiveness is also a skillful means. This development of, of uh, forgiveness practice. I also find that uh, in the throes of uh, resentment or uh, mental kind of uh, you know rehashing these kind of uh, deeper maybe anger or emotional uh, mind states that come up right about this time in meditation retreats to begin to maybe there's some maybe there's an unforgiven peace that can be forgiven so just kind of I use this as a part of my practice now 
we can forgive in our hearts you know, and never let someone in our homes again. Forgive and protect ourselves. So this forgiveness is about us. Right? So if we can open to this heart of forgiveness, we might see that we can let go of some of the repetitive thinking. Some of the, I have to remember this, that is instinctual. <clears throat> so it'll never happen to me again. Pain or being burned. Relationships or jobs or friendships. Guilt, regret or remorse. It's so intense, right? It plagues the mind. Yeah. Metta can be a challenge to that can use metta as a way to challenge these uh, guilt, remorse, regret. There's this quote from uh, Jack Cornfield: Forgiveness is giving up hope for a better past. Forgiveness is giving up hope for a better past. Yet we spend so much time, it seems, kind of rehashing. Only if I did this or... Maybe if I did it that way. This forgiving is giving up hope for a better past. I also like to think in f of forgiveness meditation. You know, uh, this is just very simple, right? If I have harmed anyone intentionally or unintentionally by word or action, may they forgive me. May they forgive me. I'm just a learner in this life. I like to use that. Sometimes during walking meditation, while sitting or walking, just this very simple, uh, please forgive me. I forgive you. I forgive myself. Please forgive me. I forgive you. I forgive myself. It can be a wonderful practice. There are so many different ways uh, to practice and work with metta. There's a few I found helpful. Like I've kind of mentioned before, I'll give this one example. I used to be a boxer. And I uh, boxed. <laughs> and one time I was sparring with this guy, and he was kind of a tough guy, you know. And he hit me a lot harder than we were intending to hit each other. And he almost broke my nose. Uh, but he caused a severe cut on the inside of my nose. And it, you know, it was profusely bleeding. I hadn't had a bloody nose since I was in junior high school. And it healed okay, and it wasn't broken. Uh, but several years later, on a meditation retreat, I started to have, a, and I had had a little bit of allergy, and I started to have a real difficulty breathing. And I started to have this nose whistle and I couldn't breathe. Uh, breath uh, and primarily sensation at the tip of the nose had been my primary meditation object. And what, what would happen is that I would start to feel this kind of discomfort and kind of stuffy in my nose and then flooded with these memories of this guy. And I would just, and then I would just be off stewing on it, rehashing. What if I did this and what if I did that? I should have really kicked his butt. Because I didn't actually, in the time I just kind of backed off and said like, whoa, this is way harder than I wanted to go, and let's stop. And I was bleeding, you know. So that was already some difference in my life. But the resentment was coming up, and it was coming up, and it was coming up. And I just started to actually, uh, well, there's two things that happened. One, I realized I actually didn't have to focus specifically on the tip of the nose as breath practice. And that there was these other tools like body awareness and hearing practice. So I shifted to that as well. And then when I was able to kind of, when the, the images would come back, I just started this forgiveness practice. You know, and forgiving him for the harm. And it really uh, sunk in. It was able to kind of disappear pretty quickly actually. So that was one, one incident.
So I'm not going to go into the, the Metta Sutta itself, but I do encourage you to take a look at it. Uh, Metta Sutta is a very helpful practice and actually all of the ways in which people currently practice uh, Metta or uh, all of the Brahma Viharas is actually found within uh, the Metta Sutta. Repeated phrase, right? When the mind is afflicted with aversion or restlessness, kind of coming to that, using it as a concentration practice can also be really helpful. Uh, I spent some time on a retreat uh, where I was just really, everything was aversive. I was aversive to everything that was happening. <laughs> my body, my room, the food, the people, loud breathers, you know, everything, right? People, some people were snor there were snoring in the hall. Like it was just, everything was a, a problem. And I was causing my own suffering. And I just shifted. I talked with a teacher, Sylvia Borstein. And, he, and she said very simply, yeah, let's just allow metta to be the focus of your practice. So for a time, letting go of the uh, vipassana kind of breath, body awareness, and just immersing yourself 24-7. Sleep the phrases. And it was sh a real big shift for me. Maybe some of you have had that practice. One, um, one retreat several years ago, well actually it wasn't that long ago, it was five years ago. I just took on the phrase, may I feel safe. May I feel safe and protected from inner and outer harm. And that was it. And there was a miraculous shift that took place. So where I started full of doubt, the hindrance of doubt was plaguing me as I was learning more about the need for balance in my own practice, the need for uh, loving kindness and compassion and care. And uh, I always thought it had to do with everyone else. But what I come to find is that it really had to do with me and my relationship with me. And it started, one of them started with, I never felt safe. Ever in my life. Until, you know, yesterday. <laughs> no, but yeah, I mean, several years, a few years ago. After really doing this practice, actually, of uh, just repeating that phrase, may I feel safe. Knowing that, you know, in this world, you can never actually be safe because of so many causes and conditions. But we can feel safe amongst a world full of instability. And I think this is at the root of what the Buddha is talking about. When the Buddha talks about, uh, you know, to search for solid ground is burning, to not need Solid ground is freedom. To embrace the instability that we're sitting on this planet that is spinning and there's a molten hot lava in the center and it's sh constantly shifting and asteroids could destroy us at any moment. This is the reality. Can I feel safe amongst all that is uncertain. So I worked with this as a practice and it was really helpful for me. Hmm. So here's a quote from Carl Jung the uh, father of Jungian psychotherapy, psychoanalysis. Your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart. Who looks outside dreams? Who looks inside awakens? By Carl Jung. Your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart. 
Who looks outside dreams. Who looks inside awakens. But don't take my word for it. See for yourself. This practice points to what we call chitta, heart-mind. In Thai they say sabai-sabai, which means same-same but different. Uh, Heart-mind is what we're hoping to uh, awaken, come into contact with. And I believe it's necessary to use both wisdom and this wisdom practice, this insight practice, and compassion. And I'm a little rebellious in saying that you can do them at the same time. Most people say do this or do that. I think that's true in some cases. But I think as an insight practice, it's really important to have, for me, kind awareness infused into my insight practice because that Dharma soldier is not far behind. That, uh, you know, you can't make any mistakes. You're not sitting in the right way. Your breathing is not right. Your concentration is not good. Your, you know, the judging, criticizing, critical mind is just around the corner. So every time that my attention wanders, and I recognize that my attention has wandered right there. I just drop in a little bit of compassion, a little bit of kindness. And back to this breathing in, breathing out, noticing the pleasant, unpleasant, or neither of this experience. So I want to end with a poem called Inquiry by Dana Falls. Feed the inner fire with breath, with inquiry, and the willingness to see reality when the flames consume the edges of your life. Invite them into the center, the core of your identity, the innermost chamber where your deepest fears reside. Watch the fire rise, sparks flying, flames lighting, the open space that remains when all else is burned away. So let's just sit for a moment. 